it's we have room to grow. You know, our our intention is to own a, a run a five night a week nonprofit jazz club. the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So my guest today of the Seattle Jazz Fellowship is Tom Marriott. Tom, thank you for uh, taking some time out of your day to sit down and talk with me. My pleasure. I would love for you to explain the backstory of the Seattle Jazz Fellowship. Okay. Well, let me do that for you. Um, awesome. So <laughs> I am a career professional jazz performer, I guess is the best way to, to put it locally based. I grew up here in Seattle. I'm definitely a product of the, um, Seattle jazz music scene in terms of, um, I grew up in a community of elders who helped me along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, I went on the road in 1999, the New York for five years, uh, came back to Seattle in 2004 this has been my career for a long time and it's been my pursuit for a long time. Um, since moving home, I've had the opportunity to travel and tour and I engage in other local jazz communities across the United States, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Chicago, and really even New York city is, is a local jazz community in a, in a certain way. Um, the entire global jazz community is not that big, you know what I mean? So, um, I think what I have had an opportunity to learn is what makes a vibrant and thriving jazz community, seeing how it's done in other places. So in Seattle, we've had a little bit of a breakdown in our jazz culture and our jazz community. We have a lot of jazz education, which is great for high school kids and even at the college level as well. But for the aspiring professional, um, and even for the, for the fan, choices are limited. It's not a huge jazz town to begin with, but what's mm -hmm. there is kind of faltering. So over the pandemic, um, like a lot of people, I started thinking about what is our community? What is our music scene? What's it going to be like after uh, we had lost our only full-time local jazz venue before the pandemic, about three or four months. It closed in September of 2019. So um, we were going to be resuming operations at the end of the lockdowns without that already. And so we were looking at a, a situation where we had some music, some jazz music in some places, some of the time, but a very hard thing. So if you were like a jazz fan getting off a plane in Seattle and you were like, Hey, what do I go hear with jazz tonight? Um, that would be hard to find out. You know, you'd have to really do your homework. There's no real hub. There's Jazz Alley, but and a few other places, but those really cater to touring bands and, and national acts. There's really no place for the local. So that plus, um, we've kind of gotten, you know, this, this is kind of a Northwest culture kind of thing. People like to do their own thing here. Um, <laughs> but jazz music doesn't really function that way. It's very much a collaborative, uh, communal, social, uh, kind of music. And so for everybody to do their own thing, we, we lose some of the vibrancy in our community, um, by not having sort of a, a hub 
You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if we don't create that vibrancy, um, nobody else is going to pay attention to it either. So, I mean, we see that this happens with every other kind of art form. People really, um, if you're into rock music, you go to the rock club and rock fans hang out and (laughs) jazz fans don't do that as much in Seattle. They do in other places. So the Seattle Jazz Fellowship was created to sort of address some of the shortcomings in our community, but also with our music. Um, and so we have sort of four major goals. The first one is to build community. And of course that's the audience as well as the musicians. Um, I talk about that a little more later, but the other goal is to um, provide a, a sort of a brass ring uh, to incentivize excellence because I feel like uh, wages are quite low for jazz folks in Seattle uh, relative to other places and definitely relative to our standard of living in Seattle. Um, so when there's not, an opportunity to make a good paycheck, the incentive to really do your best work is not really there. So that's, that's part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to um, allow access to the mentorship cycle, both giving and receiving, you know, mentoring and being a mentee and uh, lowering barriers uh, to access the music to both play and perform. So that's kind of what we're trying to get at. Um, These are things that sort of naturally occur in other jazz communities that are local, but we don't have this kind of thing in Seattle so much. So we're basically trying to incentivize participation in our community. All right. Question, uh, not being, uh, of Seattle anymore and jazz is not my go-to music genre. You mentioned a full-time venue that closed. What was the name of that place? Oh yeah. That's Tula's jazz club. And, okay. uh, it was in Belltown and we, we used to have quite a few. There was the New Orleans Creole restaurant in Pioneer Square. I mean, there were, there have been more than mm-hmm. one at a time here, for the last 60 years, you know? So, so in my naive um, understanding, you know, I was thinking jazz alley, you know, when we talked on the phone the other day, you know, I always thought of jazz alley as being this, and I think it is an institution. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. But I thought it was, I didn't think about it in the terms that it was an institution for touring acts to perform. I was also thinking that it was uh, welcoming now, and I'm not, I don't want to say it's not welcoming. I don't mean like that, but uh, that it was had more of a Seattle connection than it possibly has. Yeah, so, no, it doesn't really. Um, okay. Yeah. Local performers are lucky if they play there maybe once a year as a sideman with a, a national artist coming through. I mean, that's a common okay. thing. Um, there's been, when the, when things started to open up again, I think that they started to sort of see the value of having local artists because a lot of artists weren't traveling. So they mm-hmm. sort of were offering performances to some local folks. And I think they probably will still do that because the expense is lower for them. Just, you know, the mathematics of it, but yeah, they, again, the mathematics of it, they are 400, you know, seat club. Um, and in a jazz club situation versus a restaurant. So a restaurant, you might be open for five or six hours at a night and you might sell the same table three or four or five times in that evening, a jazz club, it's a supper club sort of situation. So the club can only sell the table one time. And, um, if you have, I'm seating for 300 or 400 people, that's a lot of, that's a lot of seats you got to sell once. Um, and so you got to have an artist big enough to be able to do that. Local artists play all the time. So that our, Mm -hmm. our audiences are not that big, you know? Right. Okay. Okay. We're going to keep going on the the Seattle Jazz Fellowship, but I'm going to come back. We'll talk about your career because that's important here. Also, so you had this inspiration to to try to develop a mentorship community, you know, a hub, as you were calling it. 
was that met with open arms by the jazz community? Was it because you like you said earlier, you said, you know, we like to do things on our own. Mm-hmm. So how is it, how is this uh, this concept received initially? I think that overall the the response has been positive. You know, okay. I, I think the response to the idea has been positive. I think that we've changed people's minds about the value of showing up for each other is still an open question. <laughs> you know, if we've done our work well, it's too early to tell. Um, okay. I, I, we raised quite a bit of money right off the bat when we announced it. So, I mean, I think that's a good indicator that this is very well received. Um, we were, uh, you know, before we even had one show, we were profiled in the Seattle times and earshot jazz magazine. And, um, I think that there's been a, a lot of interest. I, it's, I think in, in one sense, it's a, if you build it, they will come, we don't have a place to play and we have, a few hundred jazz musicians who need gigs so Mm -hmm. uh, that there's a place where people play and a place where people can hear the music and actually just see each other. Um, Yeah. I think most people are into that. So, but you guys are doing shows on Wednesdays, right? So yeah, we started in October with a a series of Wednesday night uh, shows. Yeah. It's, it's actually more than just a show. We have a listening session with our artist in residence, Julian Priester. Who's fantastic? Um, one of the true veterans of the music and a real sort of icon of of jazz music. He's played with all of the heavyweights going way back. Uh, we're lucky okay. to, that he lives in Seattle, and so he sort of narrates some of the albums that he's on by with Duke Ellington and John Coltrane and Max Roach and Sun Ra and a bunch of different people, um, mm. <laughs> as well as his own recordings. And then we have so it's a it's a it's a hang. It's a listening hang. Now this is something that normally people would just do at somebody's house. But again, we don't have that kind of community yet. Um, So we're sort of socially engineering one to take place. You know, we're hiring Julian to be there. We're inviting people. It's free. You know, we want people to come out. We're we're trying to make it as accessible as possible. Steps from the light rail. uh, So what's the name of the place? It's at Vermilion Art Bar and Gallery. It's on on, uh, Capitol Hill on 11th between Pike and Pine. Okay. Very easily accessible. Yeah. Um, Okay. And it's all ages. And so we do that. And then we have two bands. Usually each band sort of represents a different slice of jazz stylings. So we might have somebody who's more traditional, somebody who's a little more avant-garde, maybe a younger musician paired with an older musician, um, somebody who's a vocalist paired with somebody who's more heavily instrumental. Just some way we can get um, a one particular artist's audience in the room with another particular artist's audience, because I think a lot of our successful musicians have developed their own followings, but they're, they're fans of that artist, not necessarily of the genre because they don't really know yet. And so we try to get them in the, in the room together to hear something else that they might like too. But also we want those musicians to be in the room together. So they get to know each other, um, which doesn't always happen. It happens a lot, but it doesn't happen all the time. Um, and especially with particular, with people who play in particular styles of jazz, you know? Okay. Um, so yeah, that's what we're doing. And it's, it's happening every Wednesday. And so far we have enough money to, you know, keep it running. We could always use more where we have it. We're able to run it now into January. We have enough money to do it, but. Okay. Um, and how well has it been received? Oh, I think so it's, been, it's been great. It's been well attended. The music has been incredible. Um, there's been a lot of buzz about it. People are talking about it. People are coming out. Um, you know, I think it's going well. It's, it's, Good. we have room to grow. You know, our, our intention is to own a, a run a five night a week nonprofit jazz club. Um, 
we, you know, we that are. That sounds very ambitious. Well, I suppose uh, it's. I mean, five nights a week of. I you know you're, I I hope I don't offend you when I say this, but scheduling guests for this podcast, m- musicians are the hardest ones to turn down. <laughs> I get that. So uh, five nights a week, you're ambitious. To me. Uh, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yes, I mean I think this is this is with you know in our our yeah I mean Tulis was a six night a week jazz club you know the New Orleans was had a five night a week schedule too so I think part of how okay. we do this is that um, we would have a regular Tuesday night band a Wednesday one night would be a jam session and then we would offer a Thursday Friday Saturday run um, okay, okay. Uh, for our mentor artists you know there's a lot of programs we like to run in that schedule one of them being our our mentorship program where we hire a more established musician to recruit a younger musician to, to play their three night run at the club and okay. learn that artist's music and really be able to sort of pay dues. This is something that we, you know, it's not paying dues. Like we give up part of the paycheck to the union and it's, it's, <laughs> that's paying dues too. But just in terms of in the old school sense of, um, the well, rite of passage of like and being vetted. Apprentice and journeyman. Absolutely. You know, type thing. Exactly. So would this be in, in if you're designing this? Is this an all ages venue or is yeah, this it's an all ages venue? And okay. we and because it's it would be not for profit. We know we're not. I think this is something that um, has to change in the way that jazz music is sold. Uh, we have mm-hmm. been almost always just a vehicle for selling drinks, and and that's fine. And that's been the case since like Louis Armstrong, like way way back. And that's that's part of jazz culture. We're never going to change that. But um, the idea that Everything uh, that is made by the jazz musician comes from the ticket price is the thing that has to change. So in other words, if you play in a smaller venue, if there's a $15 or $20 cover charge, the club takes a piece of it and the band takes a piece of that. And that's the mathematics for the end for the evening. End of story. Um, That's fine. But the symphony, the opera, the ballet, the Mariners, the Seahawks, they don't exist just on the ticket price. They have corporate sponsorships and take donations and have patrons and do all that stuff too. So they're not expected to just get by on the ticket price. And I feel like that's something that we, we need to do too. In other words, we're not, we want to have good music on our stage, not just people that draw a crowd because there's plenty Mm -hmm. of sad musicians that draw a crowd. Like I know a lot of dudes that play at Microsoft you know, and they have full-time gigs at Microsoft. When they play that one gig in the club, they pack it out because all their friends, it's a novelty right. for them. Right. They're not jazz fans. They're just fans so of that guy. they might not do well on a three-day run. I mean, they might Thursday, they might crush it. Friday, who knows? Saturday, it's a crapshoot, right? Okay. Exactly. Right. And I, I think even if they don't do well, it's not the point. Uh, I think the point is is that we want artists that are compelling um, because mm-hmm. we want the music to be compelling to our audiences so they come back. And I think if you put, you know, something that's not very good on the stage, regardless of how many people they bring in, it's not very good. And that's not the reputation we want. We're trying to uphold excellence, you know. So you're trying to curate absolutely the, the, the experience and so that the, the venue would have a reputation. Uh, it doesn't so that you know that every time you go there, you're hearing something excellent. Right. So you just kind of got this started and off the ground and you're using Vermilion to we'll call it a launch. Mm-hmm. How do you, okay. The Seattle real estate market is, you know, it's, there's nothing happening in Seattle. No, there's plenty of, no, I'm kidding. You know, that is, but <laughs> it, the, the overhead to do this is presumably steep. 
without. Yes. I mean, this is part of the reason we're partnering with Vermilion rather than just trying to sign a lease on a place. I mean, that's just out of the question for us. I think it would right. be for anybody who's trying to, and we to open a, a performing arts space. Um, part of it is zonage too. It has to be zoned for assembly. And pretty much the only places that are zoned for assembly are restaurants, churches, and community centers. Um, and oh. restaurants, you know, come with all that built-in gear. We're not trying to sell food and beverages so much. It's really intended to be a performing arts space for jazz. Um, oh, and, okay. and so that makes it even a little more tricky, although we're still looking to find that perfect partner. There's a lot of restaurants that have an empty back banquet room that's mm -hmm. not being used or somebody we could talk out of their pool table. Um, you know, if they have a pool room in the back, get rid of that pool table and let's put our grand piano in there and let's, let's have some jazz. You know what I mean? I think that wherever we, we intended to be a pop-up jazz club at first and occupy mm -hmm. some of this vacant storefront that you see all over downtown and Pioneer Square. But there's been some understandable reluctance from um, many of the property managers and, and landlords. There's, there's issues, you know, mm -hmm. where, you know, sanitation issues, garbage issues for, for a pop-up situation where there's going to be a lot of people. So, mm -hmm. and not even a lot of people, 50 people, you know, um, sure. is a good jazz crowd for a small room. Um, so we sort of shifted tactics over time. Um, mm -hmm. And Vermilion is sort of where we're at now. We would probably partner uh, with another space if, if, if one became available. But again, we're, we are looking for to expand our, our calendar of events to be more than just one night a week. Um, okay. But yes, you're right. It's, it's expensive. Uh, we are in talks um, with some of the city owned. There's a, there's a space at the Mount Baker station. That's a community based, um, like a gathering space, a community center. It's mm -hmm. built into the plan and it's right there in the light rail complex. Um, it's run oh. by the port and the city. We're working it out to see if we might be able to do our events there on a long term basis. But these are, these are long term things we're working on at this point. Okay. How do you envision, let's expand on the mentoring. Sure. Um, how does that elaborate on that in the, in the jazz? Uh, what, in your, in your opinion, what does a good mentoring relationship look like? Yeah. So I think a good mentoring relationship is one that's based on honesty. Um, and I think this is what's different than a teacher. Uh, certainly a teacher can be a mentor to somebody, but it's a, a mentor is a, trusted and experienced advisor. So um, that honesty has to work both ways in that the mentor is sort of, let me put it this way. I've learned more from my mentors um, that told me to get lost <laughs> in many cases than those that held my hand. Um, and I okay. think that's the difference between a mentor and a teacher is that they're going to pull your coat and tell you, don't do that you know, um, okay. when it's necessary and they're going to tell you good job when you actually did a good job, not just to sugarcoat it. Um, and I feel like a mentor is somebody who is not just going to hand you a trophy. You know what I mean? Like you, you're going to have to earn it. Um, so no participation awards. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's, that's what jazz education is for. You know, that's what music <laughs> school is for. Um, the real world, nobody cares about that. You know, you have to, get up there and tell, tell your truth. So, um, I think honesty is part of it, but I think also, um, respect, you know what I mean? If, if you don't trust 
um, the person who is your mentor and you don't value their experience, you're not going to learn anything from that person. So it's a, it's a two-way street in that you have to be looking for advice and the mm-hmm. person who is the mentor has to be willing to give it, you know, um, because not all of the older established musicians in our community are willing to give advice. Some of them mm-hmm. are just like, it's not my job to tell this dude anything, you know, and if he sucks, that's his problem. It's not my problem. I don't see it okay. that way. I, when I hear musicians who are scuffling and there's a lot of them that don't sound very good, I want to live in a place with a lot of really great musicians because right. I want to play with really great musicians, you know, so... For me, it's about trying to get, uh, you know, we all have to play with people that are better than us to get better. That's the only way mm-hmm. we do it. Um, so to, to have an opportunity to be on the bandstand with somebody who's better than you and has experience, that's what we want. Um, not every young musician sees it that way. You know, a lot of young musicians don't want to be told anything. And I think that's where a lot of our mentors are sort of like, it's not my job to tell that person anything. They're not going to listen to me anyway. They just offer up unsolicited advice. Um, I certainly had a lot of unsolicited advice passed on to me when I was coming up. And some of it I was defensive about. And some of it I really took to heart. Um, mm-hmm. But I appreciated that people weren't, af- they told me because I because they cared. You know, they cared about the music uh, being in mm-hmm. good hands. And, and they saw that I was somebody who might be capable of, of keeping it in good hands. And so they told me what they thought about it and what I was doing. Um, we need more of that. That's something that happens naturally in other places. Again, that this is not our culture here. So there's a little bit of changing minds about, about that, you know. My, my knee jerk reaction to what you were just sharing though, is that how, I guess the question I'll ask you is, how do you get this younger artist who may have been in the school system, the teaching system where um, showing up is good enough mm-hmm. in some cases, right? How do you begin to develop that rapport, that trust with that, that younger person who's maybe not had uh, an honest critique and you're not trying to be, um, you know, the mentor is not trying to be um, mean or disrespectful, but is pointing out that mm, this wasn't, this wasn't quite what you thought it was. Um, and how do you, how do you, how do we get kids and I'll say kids, mm-hmm. younger, younger artists to embrace that constructive, perf, you know, performance feedback? It's a great question. I mean, the, the first thing we have to do is get them in the room together. So they have to have access to each other. That, that, mm-hmm. That's the very first thing. Um, I, so that's one thing we try to do is get them in the room together. Okay. How do we make the younger student want the advice? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, when they're, cause I guess I'm, I mean, this is my perception of the of younger kids. I mean, you know, that the school system isn't necessarily challenging them. Right. I, well, I think this is the whole thing is that mentorship is there for people who want it. It's not there for everybody who needs it, though. Um, so it's okay. something that you have to seek. It's not something that's just we're just going to foist on people on it because honestly, it's too valuable for that. Um, mm-hmm. It's it, the, the information that we're trying to pass on. It's not just for everybody and, f- and for the dabbler. You know what I mean? This okay. is for definitely for people who are trying to understand the 
I guess you would say emotional nature of this music. So if you think about the music as being physical, mental, and spiritual or emotional, whatever word you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. the part that's not the notes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, jazz education in school is good at teaching you the notes, you know, the, the, the music theory and also how to manipulate your instrument, but how to reach out and touch somebody with the music, how to communicate with an audience, how mm-hmm. to hold their attention, um, how to make them feel something. That's what we do as artists. Well, you have mm-hmm. to learn that from a mentor. Now, not every person who plays in school band wants to do that or cares about that or is interested in that mm-hmm. or feels comfortable with that. So I think part of it is that they need to experience that from a listener's point of view, right? And develop that kind of fan mentality and that if it's not life affirming for them, well, you know, maybe mentorship is not necessarily for them, but is becoming a journeyman electrician, um, an important thing for somebody who just is trying to change a light bulb. No, it's not, you know, it's for people who are looking for a career, you know what I mean? This is to, this is for people who are looking for a lifelong pursuit. Okay. So they're more predisposed to, the music music's already spoke to them. It's not just um, notes on a page performed in four, four time and technically correct. It's much more it, than that. Wonderful about being technically correct. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But there's music, at least the music that I enjoy does invoke feeling, does invoke a sense of um, wonder in some cases. Um, Sometimes that's wondering why, why did they do that? I don't understand. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, but it's, and the, and what little, okay. So not that this is just jazz related, but my, the, the jazz music that I listen to and enjoy does invoke emotion in me. I mean, it's supposed to, I mean, that's, that's our job as, as musicians and artists is to, is to make the listener feel something. Um, if we're not doing that, then we're not doing our job. And if the music you're listening to is not speaking to you in that way, then maybe that's not the music for you. You know what I mean? Like I, there's plenty of jazz that does not speak to me. Um, does that mean that it sucks? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. It just doesn't speak mm-hmm. to me. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that this is the thing is that it, you know, the perception of jazz music has, has become that it's just, it's more athletic and mathematic than it is something that, that is for a, a, a salve for the soul, you know what I mean? Which is what it used to be. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not music for musicians, despite um, what academia and musical training would have you believe. It's not that. Mm-hmm. This is a much more fundamental. I mean, this is why I think jazz is an important art form is because it's the, it's one of the most comprehensive art forms. It is both highbrow and gut bucket at the same time. You know, it has the ability to convey a whole range of emotional feelings and ideas. Um, I think that's what's important about it is that it's many, many, many dimensional. So it's not something you're just going to learn in the classroom. It has to be learned on the bandstand. But if we don't have a bandstand for people to learn on or to see the example of, it's just theoretical if we're learning it in the classroom. When did you, when did jazz first speak to you? Boy, 
I, you know, I feel lucky that I was a fan of the music before I ever picked up my horn. You know, my, my dad was a jazz radio DJ and a collector of jazz records since since his teenage years. Both of his parents were professional musicians. Um, and one of them was a classically trained, um, pianist and the other was a self-taught musician that played everything in, in, you know, piano, trumpet, trombone, guitar, saxophone, banjo, clarinet, flute. Oh, bassoon, okay. like literally everything self-taught and wow. taught lessons in those, but also led a band. Um, and there was a lot of music in the house at all times, you know? So I grew up always hearing music and, and playing on all the instruments in my grandparents' house. And so um, my dad's re- jazz record collection was something that was very taboo for us, my, my brother and I to play with as kids. Um, okay. So of course that's what we did. And, yeah, uh, I was gonna say. <laughs> and and the names of some of the musicians we just thought were funny, you know, Zoot Sims, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Yardbird Parker, you know, um okay. Thelonious Monk. We just thought that these names were hilarious, you know. Um so we would play these records and just crack up, but I do remember hearing the Dizzy Gillespie record when I was about 7 being like, "Wow, you know, I want to learn how okay. to do that." You know, it was okay. it was the tune Salt Peanuts and, and the little break that he plays. Um, and I had been playing for a little bit, but it just, I don't know, it grabbed me. And, and my dad was a fan. We always had jazz musicians in the house. Like a lot of my dad's close friends were, were musicians and they would, they would come and hang out. And I just liked them. And I remember going to um, the New Orleans Creole restaurant to hear Floyd Stanford when I was like 13 or 14. And I... I think we probably have all had this experience where you, where you go, Oh man, these are my people. You know what I mean? Like uh, this is, this is my tribe, you know? Um, and from that minute on, I've always wanted to be a part of those people. And I am, and I'm really grateful to say that I am. And I feel a part of, um, and, and an acceptance from the jazz community, not just in Seattle, but everywhere. Um, and that's a really good feeling of connection. So you and your brother would do what any <laughs> self-respecting kid would do, which is the opposite of what mom or dad told you to exactly. do. Exactly. When <laughs> did it ever get to the point where your dad was sharing stuff like, hey, you need to listen oh, to this? Absolutely. So when when did that start happening? Oh, in your- very closely after he caught us playing his records. Um <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I, we, we played a trick on him. We went I live close to the library, so my brother and I would went to the library and they had a copy of of a record in particular that my dad also had a copy of. And so we, okay. we, when he came home from work, we had it sort of laying out and, and we were playing it, you know, trying to go to him into getting mad at us for playing his records, even though it was the library's record. And he came home and he, and he wasn't mad at all. He was like, Oh, you guys are checking out Duke Ellington or whatever, you know? And pretty much right after that, he was like, well, have you checked out this, you know, but also anytime I would get in the car with my dad, he had jazz on, you know, he had like a shoebox full of tapes, Bud Shank and George Cables and Stan Kenton and the stuff that he was into. Um, okay. So when my brother and I were about 13 or 14, my dad and my uncle would blindfold test us. I don't know if you know what that is, but um, in Downbeat Magazine, which has been the magazine that's covered jazz since like the 40s or 30s, maybe. Okay. They always have a blindfold test in every issue where they, somebody from the magazine sits down with an artist and plays albums for them without telling them who, who the artist is. And so you have to identify and make commentary about who that person is. So in other words, okay. um, they'd play you saxophone player, 
playing a tune and I go, name the saxophone player. You know, who is it? Um, this is something that jazz musicians do all the time to, to really get their ears together. Like, you know, every musician is supposed to have a personal style. And so they should be okay. immediately recognizable and identifiable. Um, and so if you're a jazz musician and jazz comes on the radio, you know, usually in four or five notes, you can, you know who it is. Um, if you're, if you're a fan. So mm-hmm, when I was a mm-hmm. kid, my dad and my uncle would blindfold test me. They, they, my uncle would send a tape and he would have, I don't know, like 15 songs on it. And uh-huh. he would be like, all right, write down your answers and mail them back to me, you know? Oh, wow. And so I'd be like, I think this one is Sonny Stitt and I think this one is Cannonball, you know, I think this one is Miles. And it would be some really obscure, not the normal sort of stuff, but, right. um, yeah, it was fun. And then, and then the tables turned and we would blindfold test them, you know, on the stuff that we were into. So. I, I, so out of curiosity, how well did you typically do on your, on these blindfold tests? Oh, almost a hundred percent. I mean, I, I've been listening really? to jazz records my whole life so pretty okay. much. So, I mean, yeah, by 14 or 15. dad? Oh, definitely. You, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a musician, you're always going to take it farther than somebody who's not a musician, no matter how big of a fan you are. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. Um, but I, I, I will say that that in and of itself has probably been the biggest leg up for me in my career as a musician is just okay. knowing the music, knowing the albums, knowing the musicians who made it, um, and having an intimate and personal relationship with the, re- with oh. the records. Um, most of my heroes in the music have a similar relationship with the records, you know what I mean? And the okay. recorded music. And it's, a, it's a fundamental aspect. I think most people come to it after they've been playing the music for a while, they kind of become interested in, you know, it's traditions and, and all of that. But that was before I started playing. Okay. It's been, it's been a huge help. Did your brother uh, go Uh, go into music? Yeah. He's a trombonist. He is. Okay. All right. So in the, in the house, were you, I mean, some, some parents, you know, they make their kids. She's upset. (laughs) The mailman, of course. Oh, the the immortal enemy. (laughs) Yeah. So did, did your, did your dad encourage you to be a musician? Did he require you to practice? Was it, how was it? Was it carrot or was it stick or? It was, you know, we all had to take piano lessons as kids and I would just sit at the piano and cry. And after like three years, they were like, okay, you don't have to take piano lessons anymore. And I hated it. But when they put the trumpet in my hand, they never told me to practice. And I practiced every day, all day. And I, I have pretty much since the age of seven or eight. And no, they never discouraged me. They never really Mm -hmm. encouraged me, although they were, you know, supportive, definitely supportive. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I am very lucky because it's okay. It's the mailman. Um, because, because they, they have, they were always there at every single gig, you know, and it wasn't a scary thing. Like my dad, like I said, he grew up in a household with two professional musicians making the income. And so I mm-hmm. think there's, there's, that's the fear for most parents is like, yeah, um, <laughs> you're never going to be able to make a buck, you know, but right. he grew up. Are in you going to, you're going to live on my couch forever. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that wasn't the case. I, I think things have changed. Like there was more work for musicians when my dad was a kid and his parents okay. were working as musicians, but I um, mean, you could have a more middle-class kind of lifestyle that way. Um, mm-hmm. But no, they, they weren't worried about it. Okay. And you went to school in the cellar? I went to Garfield high school and university of Washington. Okay. And then after the U, you went 
I went on the road with Maynard Ferguson. <laughs> I, okay. I, I worked right. around so, Seattle for a couple of years. I mean, I was working, I was working every Friday night, my senior year of high school, I was already playing every Friday night. And in my sophomore year of high school, I played my first paid gig and started performing. Where was that at? Where was your first paid gig? It was at the New Orleans Creole restaurant where I had been hanging out as a teenager. And, um, okay. I was subbing for one of my heroes at the time, Jay Thomas. He called me. He'd heard me play at a high school jazz festival and was like, you're going to sub for me at this gig and I'll pay you $20. You know, I thought that was, I was the big time for me because it was the venue where I'd heard all my favorite people play. Um, right. So yeah, I, I was playing every Friday night at the, at, uh, at the speakeasy in Belltown, which is not there anymore, but uh, gigged all the way through college. And then, uh, I won this trumpet competition in 1999 and won um, $10,000 and was going to use that money to move to New York. But then I got the call to play on Maynard Ferguson's band. And um, it wasn't a high point for his band necessarily. Like I saw them play at the alley and was like, well, it's not the most killing band, but you know, he's a legend. And right. all of my mentors at the time were like, you got to go on the road. You know, you got to, you got to do that. That's part of paying dues. Um, so I did. I just did what they told me to do. I, I didn't really think twice about it. I, you know, I packed all my stuff in a suitcase and lived on a bus for a year. And then when there all was right. time off, I would live in New York looking for apartments. Okay. So I got to ask, cause Maynard Ferguson's a name that I'm familiar with, okay. uh, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, we'll call it, dare I say a household name, right? <laughs> How on earth does a, a college kid, I mean, this seems so foreign to me that you not, and I, I'm not this has nothing to do with your ability to play music. I don't mean it like that at all, but an unknown guy in Seattle is gets a phone call from a, a national uh, touring performer. How does that happen? How, what's the mechanism in the, in the, in the industry that allows, I get, are, were you, was it cause you were cheap labor? I mean, I don't mean, <laughs> you know, oh, I mean, well, I mean, absolutely. Yes. I mean, everybody, <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's true for every band leader. You know, you you, you okay. want to get the best people you can at the cheapest price. I mean, that's you, sure. and this is part of how mentorship has existed in jazz. You know, our <laughs> Blakey famously, you know, he had all this band of young kids because, um, you know, when all these musicians are young and he's the old guy on the stage, a people love to see that and they go out and see it, but also b you don't have to pay him very much because they have no <laughs> career yet. You know, you're giving right. them the career. So, um, for for Maynard's in Maynard's case. There were no names in the band. I mean, they were all people mm -hmm. who are mostly right out of school. I mean, they were, and okay. I think the oldest person there was maybe 35 on the gig. And they were all pretty young, young people. Um, and as far as like me personally, um, I, some trumpet fans somewhere had sent the road manager a tape and they were like, Hey, there's a guy who lives in Seattle. You know, you guys should check him out. And um, okay. they were here over the WTO riots the band and they were stuck in the hotel, you know what I mean? And, and the road manager called me. He was like, Hey, we're just sitting around. Would you come over and let's get lunch? Wow. You know? So I went over and hung out because the, that the gig at the alley was closed. And then I went and sat in and, um, they had a vacancy. Somebody was leaving and they asked me to join. And I did. Um, I, it's not actually that uncommon. I mean, you think about like Quincy Jones going on a road with Lionel Hampton, you know, the band comes to town, they need somebody. That dude's available and is willing to drop everything and go right now. Go, you know, uh, right. uh, that's what I did. <laughs> so what was it like being on the road for a year? Oh, I, you know, 
great and horrible. <laughs> you know, you at live on a bus. Time. Yeah. You live on a bus and you eat at truck stops. Um, and you okay. stay kind of dirty most of the time and broke. Um, but okay. on the other hand, you re- do realize that what a gift the, the music part of it is. So you really get paid to travel and then you get to play the music. And, um, it did teach me to never ever take that part of it for granted because that really is the, the best part. Everything else is just uh, in service of that, you know? So I'm going to ask you, this might be a tough question and I don't mean it to be tough, but I'm just curious. So that year you spent on the bus tour in America, turn North America. Do any shows stick out? Like was there, was it, or was it all just one big blur, but was there any, like you played somewhere and you went, wow, this is really special. I, you know, this, the shows in Europe were, were kind of stand out. We went to Germany for, for two weeks and, um, we played opposite of Roy Hargrove's band every single night. Okay. That was really great. Um, and we rode the bus with them too. That, that was really great okay. and, and definitely memorable. Um, but it was a lot of high school gymnasiums. You know what I mean? Like a lot of high school gymnasiums. There definitely were gigs that stood out. We did one in, in Boston with Arturo Sandoval at like the big performing arts center there. That was incredible. Um, okay. I definitely remember that one pretty well. I remember one at this place called two nights actually at this place called Rusty's in Ohio. And it was a real jazz joint and we didn't play a lot of jazz joints cause it was a big band, you know? Right. Um, right. And we played two nights there and it was great cause it really felt like what I thought we would be doing, you know, in my mind, okay. I thought we'd okay. be playing jazz venues all across the U S and I would be getting to know the people who booked those rooms and starting to like, just get to know people who work there. That was not the case at all. I mean, you, it was mostly colleges and play, high schools. You're going to play in Peoria High, Peoria high totally. School. Totally. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. So you, you did that. You paid some dues. I don't know. I won't, don't want to say that was all your dues. I don't mean like that, but you paid, you paid, paid some, some dues. dues. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Then is that when you moved to New York after that? Yeah. Sort of while the time. Uh, yeah. So you'd be out for maybe three or four weeks and then you'd have three or four days off and you go back out for okay. three or four days. So it was just cheaper that way. If they had, um, when I was on the band, they didn't own a bus at the time. They, they rented a coach which is great because okay. it was a legit tour bus instead of just like a funky old Greyhound. Um, <laughs> and they would swap it out, you know? So if the tour took place on the, on the West coast, they'd fly you home and then mm-hmm. you re meet up with the band on the West coast and be on that bus for four weeks. And then they fly you home and then maybe you'd be Texas and the South or someplace like that for mm-hmm. that's where that particular part of the tour. So it wasn't, totally nonstop. There were little breaks, but when I had breaks, I would move to New York. I would go to New York, stay with a friend and look at a, look for apartments and look for apartments. Yeah. And I did find one while I was on the road and sublet it until I was, I gave notice and I was like, I'm ready to move into my place now. <laughs> so what was New York like? I mean, I know this is the, my podcast is all about Washington state, but I think we're, we're building up to, you know, you came home oh, yeah. I mean, you've ultimately the story, we know you moved back to the cellar. So, but what was it like being a, a young musician in, in New York city? Oh, it was great. It was wonderful and terrifying and exciting. And all of those things I got to play with so many of my heroes. I mean, I, I would hesitate to even start to list, but I mean, talk about paying, being able to pay dues. I mean, it was a great learning experience. Uh, you just have no idea where the music is until you go and, and live there for a while. But also it's, okay. it's surprisingly easy to make a living as a musician there. There's a lot of work. It's not 
it, I wasn't doing the work that I moved there to do, but that's again, paying dues. Like you, you're the new guy. It, mm-hmm. It's cool. When you live there, you might be number 300 on a list of trumpet players to get called for a particular gig, you know, but uh-huh. you're actually on the list. If you live there, if you live here, you're not on the list for anybody's gig. Right. <laughs> um, and right. every once okay. in a while, your number comes up and you get called and you're like, wow, they're, they're calling me to play Madison square garden. Okay. You know, um, oh. So things like that would come, would come up and it would be great. You know, it just, there wasn't enough of them in a row after five years. Well, there were a lot of reasons I moved back, but um, it's a long, it's a long game. I mean, you have to be there 10, 15 years to move your way up those lists, you know, and to really, Mm -hmm. to really work your way in anywhere. Um, And I just didn't really love it enough. Um, After five years, I felt like I had learned a lot. Um, I was ready to be playing more full time um, okay. at the music that I wanted to play instead of like top forty or whatever. There are other things too. I had a crazy job when I when I lived there. Um, I was a process server uh, working for a you know, <sighs> serving legal papers, and my my boss ended up going to prison while I was working there, and I ended up having to run the office. So it became this very easy part time and lucrative gig for me that I could just do when I was in town. Um, when I had free time to all of a sudden being kind of handcuffed to it, not, not to make a pun. I'm glad I actually was never handcuffed to it, but I did move back to make sure I wasn't going to (laughs) be subpoenaed or something to testify because it it turned out the guys I was working for were into a lot of other, other stuff, um, that, uh, I was glad to be able to extricate myself from by moving back to Seattle. Okay. And we'll leave it All at right, that. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you some questions now that will probably put you on the spot. Cause you probably, you, you didn't know that they were coming. So in your musical career, is there a particular venue that you've performed at that was like, you mentioned Madison Square Garden. So, um, has there, can I put you on the spot? What was the, your favorite venue you've ever played? I know that's probably next to impossible. Favorite venue. Yeah, that would be a tough one. I mean, there's a few places I really like working still. I mean, honestly, Jazz Alley is a great place to work. It, it really is. They okay. treat you great. It's it's a very comfortable place to work uh, of all the places. I mean, it's it's got to be at the top, towards the top of the list. I don't get to do it that often, but it is, it is a great place to work. I also love Smalls in New York City, um, which is totally the opposite. It's not comfortable. And that's what's great about it. It's very small. The green room is like a closet. But I have <laughs> I have met and been able to hang out with um, some incredible musicians just sitting in the green room because it's just kind really? of it's it's where it's located in, in the neighborhood there on Seventh Avenue. It's right next to a few other clubs, the Village Vanguard, which I've never had the pleasure to play at, but it's my favorite place to hear music. You know. Okay. Um, okay. Listen, puppy, it's just the UPS man. Um, the other more yeah exactly there's a few of them out there but uh yeah you know i like the places where where the audience is right up close to you you know i mean where you could see people and it feels like you're right there like it's ringside at a prize fight you know i i feel like that's where jazz is really really thrives i mean i'm all for putting it on the big stage and it needs that respect and i i believe it's it's earned that due but to have the real feeling of the music to me when you're all crowded in that small little space and the band's right in front of your face i love that i really love that you well all right now these are going to be washington-based questions okay great you you already kind of gave the nod to Jazz Alley. 
And there's other venues, of course. How about to see and hear music performed in, in Washington State? Where's it, where do you like to go be a guest, an audience member? Well, it's fun to go hear music at Vito's, you know, which is on Madison. Um, it's yeah. very casual and it's kind of a lounge and, and the, the band is, is right there. Uh-huh. That's really good. That's a really good place to hear, you know, you know, a more casual kind of setting. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, some of the places I used to love to go aren't there. Uh, the Owl of Thistle is a great place to go hear music, too. It's a very vibrant, lively kind of place. Okay. And, of course, at the more listenable level, um, yeah, you know, Triple Door is a great venue. Jazz Alley is a great venue to hear music. Um, I've seen great music in a lot of places. I've seen, uh, but those are those probably are the standouts. Those are the ones? Okay. Is there a stage you want to play on you haven't played on? In Washington? Yeah, we'll go there first. Yes, in Washington. Mm, I don't think so. Okay. I've, I've, How about I've, out, now we can go beyond Washington? <laughs> I mean, I, I've never played Carnegie Hall. It's not really on my bucket list, but it would be nice to say that I played there. But I have always wanted to play at the Village Vanguard. And I, someday, maybe I will. Okay. Yeah, that's. it's always interesting listening to when I talk to musicians about venues. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, no matter what genre it is, the triple door gets mentioned by almost everybody. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that musicians all speak very highly of that venue. Yeah. I mean, well, consider they, they have thought about the performance aspect of the stage, you know, so the monitors are unobtrusively seen, um, but they sound good. And, you you know, the audience, they're not in the way the piano is excellent, you know, the gear and the people that are running the the sound know what they're doing. It's, you know, I've, I've, been an audience member there where I thought eh, it's kind of a big room, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it just feels like a big room, but I've also been like in the very front booth. I heard just before the lockdown, like the last live music I really saw was at the triple door. I saw Brantford Marsalis quartet and oh. I was right in the very front, like in the front booth in the middle. It was awesome. I mean, it was great because it was primarily an acoustical situation, really. I mean, it was like so close. Mm-hmm. The, the, the mains were kind of going the other way. So it was great, you know, is there uh you mentioned Brantford Marsalis, which is another name that everybody knows, you know. Is there a musician you want to play with? Is there somebody that, you know, you know, we'll call it that bucket list? <laughs> um is there is there somebody you'd like to to play? Well, oh, sure. I mean, sure. I'd love to play with Wayne Shorter. I'd love to work with Herbie Hancock, you know. Yeah, of course. There's tons of musicians. Okay. I mean, I don't know the real the reality of that is is probably highly low, you know, very low, but um I yeah, I mean, that, those would be the first two people I can think of. <laughs> All right, so now let's go back historically. Is there somebody that's no longer with us that you think would have been an amazing uh person to perform with? Oh, well. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, if if time was no uh, barrier, right. sure, I would love to play yeah. with Charlie Parker, Art Tatum, or John Coltrane. I'd love to, you know, sit in Duke Ellington's band. I'd love to play in the in the bassy trumpet section. Uh, yeah, man, I'd love to hit with Max Roach. I mean, so many people. I mean, God, yeah, that, that's, that's what I lay awake so, at so, night dreaming about. You know. So help me out here as as a as a layman. And that's even being generous. Why? Why those names? What is it about? What is it that resonates there for you? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I would love to just go hear them, to be a fly on the wall and hear them play, let alone participate in the music making, because all we have is the records, you know, so I obviously would love to see like the live thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And and 
because there's so much more to the music than just what's on the record, you know, and also mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a manufactured product. It's not the live experience, you know? Um, and how does the audience react to what's happening in the room and how does that change what the musician is playing, you know, and all of those things that, that are incorporated in a live performance. So, I mean, I would like to, to participate in that in, on just on that level, but to be able to play with them, why? Well, I think part of it is that, that's the bar has been set very, very high by those particular musicians. You know, it's part of something that's very special in terms of mm-hmm. its collective thinking. You know what I mean? Like you think, take like the, the Basie band or whatever, everybody's, um, and still the ghost band, everybody's on the same page about how, how it's supposed to go. You know, there's no, there's okay. no guesswork. Like you, you become a part of something that's much, 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 much bigger than you. Um, but you're also an integral part of that thing that's much bigger than you. I th- think that's the kind of experience all people are looking for in some way. Yeah. It's, uh, thank you. That was a wonderful answer. I'm on the, uh, jazz fellowships website on my, you keep seeing me look over to the right, you know, for this audio format, nobody knows this, but you keep seeing me look over here. So, your bios got you with recording 13 albums as the leader for origin records. Yep. Let's look. No, I'm not, I'm kidding. When I say, tell me about each album. No, just, uh, <laughs> how's, where's your musical career at now? Now I hate to bring this up because it's, you know, and we bring it up every episode. COVID is impacted. Everybody. Sure. So as we're working our way out of this, What's your musical career looking like right now? That's a good question. I don't, it's definitely in transition. Um, Part of the reason being that I am engaged with the Seattle Jazz Fellowship's work. So that's Mm -hmm. being a whole, I'm running a nonprofit, (laughs) you know, and and, and being a, (laughs) a director of a nonprofit and raising money and all that stuff. So that's a new part of my career that I've not, um, you know, experienced before. But other than that, I'm not sure it looks all that different. I have two records in the can right now that are, are sort of projects that are irons in the fire. Um, which one mm-hmm. will get hottest first? I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I'm always trying to figure out what is that next thing to try to stay busy. Mm-hmm. It's a little tricky in Seattle. You sort of have to be a, a more self-starting kind of musician. You know what I mean? Like the, I'm self-managed as well. So I have to go out okay. there and make the work work. But, um, you know, travel is such a huge part of what we do as musicians. And of course, none of us have really been, I haven't been comfortable traveling. So uh, travel has been, you know, on hiatus. Yeah. Uh, um, do you anticipate, you know, it's hard to predict. We don't know what the future holds. I mean, that's one of the things with my friends we talk. It's like, we don't know what 2022 is going to look like. We don't know if, are we going to be free to move about the cabin uh, seatbelt sign be taken off for all of us? We don't, I don't know. We just don't know. But what do you think? What's the near future looking like for you? I mean, if you, if I put you on the spot and said project after I just got done saying you can't, but you know, what, what would you hope 2022 looks like? I, in one sense, a return to normalcy, but in another sense, there are a lot of things about what was normal that I think we'd all like to change. You know, I think that's the wonderful opportunity that we have here is that we mm-hmm. get to define what is the normal once we return. So um, I'm part of a ensemble of musicians called Captain Black Big Band. They they are sort of based in Philadelphia and New York City. Um, so I haven't played with them in a couple of years now because... COVID. I would right. really looking forward to resuming those activities and getting back on the road and, and, 
and seeing and playing with them. That's a great, incredible experience. Um, so more of that, um, less getting paid low wages. I think this is the other thing that I've learned in the pandemic is like, I'm, um, not that I'm a super hot commodity. I'm not really, but I'm, I'm choosing, you know, as when you're self-employed, the only real control and power you have is to say no. Um, mm -hmm. and so I'm trying to make sure the opportunities I say yes to are, are meaningful, either, you know, musically, financially, personally, whatever they happen to be. But, um, I'm less likely to take a gig now just because. How about this question for the, the jazz fellowship for 2022? What, what do you hope, uh, you remember the board, maybe talk about your other board members or something, but sure. what, what do you hope is the next phase for, you know, the, the jazz fellowship? Good question. So yes, we're, we're coming to the end of our first year fiscally and with our board members and all of that. And I've, we do have a great, uh, I'm really happy with the composition of our board right now. We are going to probably be expanding in 2022. Um, I would love to see us, uh, present, um, more than just one night a week of music, but also to be able to present, uh, double bills and include touring bands, um, and national acts and get, get some of our, um, you know, rising stars to open for them and get those people in the same room too. Obviously a more robust fundraising mechanism is in the works for 2022. Um, mm -hmm. so that's what we're looking at. We're you know, chipping away at our goals there. How can we make the music more accessible to more people? Yeah, I think, and I think as, as, as the communities open up more, you'll get more people come out. We're looking out. I love the idea that you guys are curating it. So it doesn't, it's not that I don't want to say it doesn't matter who's playing, but that the, the venue, your, your, your organization's got a reputation that no matter who's playing, it's going to be talent or, you know, a talented artist performing, not my cup of tea, maybe that day, but it won't be because they were not talent exactly I, I think this is it's not even about being talented i mean it, it certainly is but i also feel like it's just the way that the music is presented you know i think mm -hmm. that because jazz music is improvisational and then it's also kind of part of an oral tradition is that there's a a tendency especially locally to sort of present the music in a in a a, a loose and maybe even sloppy kind of way um that it has a kind of a thrown together kind of feel. I mean, there's that old saying, Hey, it's close enough for jazz. Um, I, I know a lot of musicians that would really take exception to that. People who are extremely detail oriented and have worked extremely hard on their music. You know, they would never say right. like, that's not close enough because they have very demanding standards of themselves, you know, but mm -hmm. there are also people that don't. Um, I think that there's a lot of reasons that people don't like jazz. And I think there are a lot of valid reasons why people don't like jazz. I don't really like country Western music, you know, but that's not to say that there's not incredible music being made in that genre. I just don't know right. what a lot of it is. I'm sure that there's, there's standouts in every genre, you know? Absolutely. And I think that uh, we're trying to have a showcase of local excellence, not just in the music. That's definitely the, the number one priority, but we want artists that really know how to present a show. They really know how to how to be respectful to the audience by being prepared. And so part of the mentorship is helping definitely the younger generation learn that stage. Absolutely. Craft. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you're right. When when a when a performer knows their craft, it does show. It, uh, I, I 
like, for example, you, you said country Western. A few years ago, I went with a friend of mine down to the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco. I don't know. If, so it's three days of free music in Golden Gate Park. And they cool. have like either seven or nine stages cool. at the same time. A million people go through the park in three days for this, this event. It was mind blowing. And it's, it's free. It's, it's, and it's not just country Western music or bluegrass. It's, it's all sorts of Boskegs was, you know, plays there. Joe Jackson, things like that. My friend wanted to go see Dwight Yoakam. And I kind of rolled my eyes, went, really? Come on. No, come on. Trust me. You'll like this. I won't say it was, I won't say it was the first note that came out of the speaker system, but within the first 10 seconds, I knew I was in for something I wasn't. I had, I was just, wow. Yeah. Like just, that was a, that was a musical group that they took control from the, they, they delivered on what they wanted to deliver on whatever that was. That mean they were just, it was, it was compelling. Wow. It was compelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that. Wow. I want tickets. I I want tickets to see Lou Rawls one time and I was not a fan, but man, I was a fan when I left is it was killing. Yeah. See, isn't that kind of, that's kind of the fun thing when you go and let's say Lou Rawls has a reputation and well-known performer and all that. And you're like, I still, I don't know, but you know, he's got some credence. Yeah. And so you go and you're like, well, I was wrong. And that was amazing. (laughs) I love, I love those, those evenings. Like when I go see something that, or someone that I like, I've heard good things about, you know, Maynard Ferguson. The opposite can be true too. I've been really psyched to see a couple of bands and gone, that was actually not very good, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, uh, you know, both things can be true. So, I mean, I think this is the, this is what highlights the nature of needing to be open-minded about music, you know, right. um, this is also the, 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 the mentality we're trying to change amongst the musicians though, is that it's not really so much about that. You know, when we show up for each other, it's not, saying that we love everything that that musician is playing. It's that Mm -hmm. we want vibrancy around the music in general. You know, it's not just Mm -hmm. about that particular artist or you or me. It's much, much bigger than that. You know, when Mm -hmm. we, when we try to get people to come out, it's not so much about, you know, this is the best stuff. Come check this out. This is the best music you're going to hear. Not at all. This is more about, Hey, we're trying to develop a whole thing here, a whole ecosystem here. It's more than just this one artist. So we're trying to like have a family, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. this is what's required. Like I don't love soccer. In fact, I don't really like soccer at all, but I go to all my kids' soccer games. It's not about soccer (laughs) in any way. It's it's about supporting, it's about supporting the kids. It's about the family. Yeah. Last question is really kind of, you know, the, my get out of jail free card question. (laughs) What didn't I ask you that I should have <laughs> put it all on you? <laughs> well, if this was a clinic, they would say, well, how much does a new trumpet cost? <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, and there's, there's a, that's a loaded question. Isn't yeah, it? sure. Um, what did you not ask me? You didn't ask me, how can people support the Seattle Jazz Fellowship? That's a great way to end this. Um, I love it. Because we're a nonprofit, you know, we, we do exist and we run all of our programs strictly on donations. Um, when people come in, they pay a suggested donation to our events, but that doesn't cover nearly what the expense is. So we were, it costs us about $2,200 every Wednesday. Um, 
So we definitely do need people to support. And if this sounds like something that uh, people would like to support, the best thing to do is to just visit our website. And um, that's www.seattlejazzfellowship.org. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes for this too. So they can, they don't have to remember. They can literally just click a link. Appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to make this happen. And I'm looking forward to now I'm a fair weather traveler and it's about to snow and I'm not going to come across the pass, but I will come over and I will attend a Wednesday event because it sounds awesome. It's a lot of fun. I think it's a lot of fun. I I mean, I think this is the whole thing. There's the music and there's the hang, you know, and the hang is what makes the music fun, you know? Right. No, I think that's, that's, it sounds great. I'm glad I, uh, I, well, how I heard about you was your article and they had an article on you in the Seattle times and I, you know, I reached right out to you and you responded and I was like, this is, this is, I think what you're doing, that sounds awesome. So, uh, keep it up. Please. I appreciate that. And thanks for uh, shining a light on our work. All right. Well, you have a good you day. Too, Scott. Take care. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.